Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 13, Anacetus. Unlucky. Yes, he's not Anacletus, mind you. He is Anacetus. Just minus the L? No, it's spelled totally different. It's spelled, instead of A-N-A-C-L-E-T-U-S, he is A-N-I-C-T-U-S. Oh. Yeah. So have you heard of him before? Mm-mm. I don't think I have because there's not a strange church named after him. Yeah, I didn't find one either, but he's kind of somewhat an early notable name for the Pope, so I thought maybe there's a possibility you might have, but... You know, with seven years of Catholic school, you may jog something loose. Yeah, and I mean, he gets mentioned a lot when I'm researching all of the other early popes, so, you know, he, he follows their lead, and he, he also has some influential friends, so, yeah, we're gonna get to it, but he's not quite as unknown as some of the popes that we've covered so far, so that's kind of cool. That being said, this episode is going to be about Anacetus, but it's also, like last week, gonna be about a ton of other things and other people, so, Buckle in. All right. Are you ready? Are you buckled? Well, I don't have a buckle on my computer chair, but I will make do. You should. (laughs) How do you get really into gaming when you don't have a buckle? No, I'm just kidding. Who has that? (laughs) I'm riffing too far. Anacetus. The name means unconquered or invincible in Greek. So we'll have to see if he's worthy of it. Do you have any predictions of how that might go for him? Beheading. Okay, it's a good guess. It's always beheading. We're going to start things off a little differently because I have a lovely block quote to start with from Father Francis Xavier Wenninger from 1876. And we're going to draw from him a couple times in this episode. So in order to get into it, I think we need to talk about him for just a second because He is an Austrian Jesuit missionary and author who lived from 1805 to 1888, and he's famous for delivering nearly a thousand sermons just in the year of 1854. Wow. How many is that a day? That's three a day on average, so yeah. And that's if you didn't miss any days. I have to assume that some of them are repeats. You know, it didn't say one way or another, just that he sermonized a thousand times in the year. So, yeah. What we need to know about him for for what he's going to do for us in this episode is he is super keen on Anacetus. Like, he writes like a dramatic schoolgirl in her first crush, and I love it. So, you know, priests really do write like teenage girls sometimes when they're talking about the saints. The hagiographies are all, like, really, really complimentary, and they're so excited about what they're writing about, so... I like genuine excitement. Yeah, and I don't know... They tend to have things in their in their writings that no other historical sources get, so I don't know where they're getting their information or if they're making it up, but <laughs> Father Weininger has a lot to say about Anacetus that no one else has any record of. We're going to draw from him a lot because it gets uh, it gets real crushy, and I really, really enjoyed it. With that in mind, here is Father Francis and his document, Pope Anicetus, Pope and Martyr. 
St. Anicetus, the twelfth pope after St. Peter, first saw the light of day in Syria toward the end of the first century. He was carefully educated by his parents and was gifted by God with great natural abilities, especially with a clear, penetrating mind. He made, by his untiring perseverance, such progress in all sciences that he was accounted among the best scholars of his time. In addition to this, the life he led was so blameless that he was a model to every one of Christian perfection. The most shining of all his virtues was his truly apostolic zeal in protecting and disseminating the true faith. Therefore, when Pius I had ended his life by a glorious martyrdom, Anicetus was unanimously elected his successor amid great rejoicing. Yay! Blameless Christian perfection! Hmm. Much rejoicing. So, with that in mind, what of this can we actually verify? Well, he was a Syrian, and he was born sometime in the late first century to a father called John in the city of Emesa. Emesa is currently Homs in western Syria. I know we're just getting started here, but this is an important and somewhat interesting tangent to go on. So let's talk about Emesa for a minute, because it has a lot of importance in relation to Rome at this time. Because, well, not just the Pope, but emperors too came from this place. First, Emperor Septimius Severus's wife, Julia Domna, was from a noble family in Emesa. Her father was actually a high priest, and her not-so-distant ancestors had been high priest-slash-priest kings in Emesa for the cult of Elagabalus, the sun god. Does that name ring a bell at all, Elagabalus? I have never heard of Elagabalus. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say his name. Julia Domna's grand-nephew, who we know today as Emperor Elagabalus, was raised in Emesa and served as a high priest for Elagabalus before he became emperor. And he's going to bring the sun god to Rome to assimilate with the pre-existing sun god of the Roman pantheon called Sol Invictus. This is all going to happen after the time that we're talking about, and we're not going to get into it any more than that. And there are some great Totalis Rankium episodes, and Elagabalus is one of the craziest emperors, and I love talking about him. He may have been, like, the first transgender ruler. He also threw, dis like, crazy, crazy dinner parties where he tried to kill people with fright and he drowned people in rose petals and all this great stuff. Brown people in rose petals. Logistics of that. Yeah, he also had a tiger that was tamed, but he would put drunk people who had passed out in a room with the tiger so that when they wake up, they would have a heart attack out of fright, even though the tiger wasn't going to attack them, so... Great kind of guy. Check out those episodes. It's great. He's one of my favorite emperors to talk about, so. But what this tells us, with this city being such a important place for the, the worship of Elagabalus, the sun god, gives us an indication of why Anicetus might not have wanted to stay there and why he might have ended up in Rome. Because if we know that Elagabalus, the sun god, not the emperor, is the dominant religion for the area and a dominant force in the city, it's going to keep other religions, specifically Christianity, from settling there. Or at least they're not going to be able to make 
a dent in converting people because people are really into the sun god. Yeah. So if Anicetus is born into a Christian family or somehow got converted, there's very little likelihood of him having any success with his faith in Emesa. In fact, Emesa is not going to have any type of notable Christian population presence at all until about the 300s. We actually have Eusebius telling us that the first bishop that is sent to Emesa, called Silvanus, could only make inroads in, like, the peripheral villages around the city, and even then he's going to get martyred for his efforts. Don't mess with the sun god, apparently. He's on fire. He's on fire, and maybe he wants other people to be on fire with him. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be until we get Bishop Antuinus, who succeeded Silvanus a long while later, that any Christianization is going to happen there. So, yeah, we, we're going to get the impression that Anicetus wanted to get out of Emesa at some point. It's not a good place to be a Christian. Doesn't seem like it. So at some point, he ends up in Rome, and he enters the church. And if we are to believe Father Francis then he is unanimously elected to follow Pope Pius and be the next pope. But we have no records of this, and we don't even know for sure if there was an election process at this time. Just keep that in mind. That's fair. So what did he do as pope, you might be asking? Well, I'm going to turn back to Father Francis, because in this document, he outlines what papal life looked like for Anicetus. Calling on God for aid. He began earnestly to work. By daily sermons, by teaching and exhortation, he endeavored to move the Catholics to more fervency in their religion, as well as to a reformation of their lives. The example of his own holy life gave the greatest force to his words. He lived like a saint, and all his thoughts were directed to lead his flock to salvation. He was an enemy to even the most innocent amusement, and found his only pleasure in prayer and working for the honor of God and the salvation of souls. He employed the greater part of the night in devotional exercises, and during the day he was only found in church, in the dwellings of the sick or poor, or at home, occupied in study or prayer. Wow, this man's got a crush. <laughs> He's got such a crush. And if we believe him, then Anicetus has a really holy life, but he's not doing anything fun or interesting because all he's doing is praying and sermonizing and praying and sermonizing and visiting some sick people and praying and sermonizing. Mm -hmm. But again, this is literally the only source we have that says this, so it could just be a flair for the dramatic here. Probably. No one is keeping track to the day-to-day -day life of the popes at this point, but we do actually have some things that we can historically verify. Getting the administration from the Liber Pontificalis out of the way, he had five ordinations in his papacy for a total of 19 priests, four deacons, and nine bishops. And I really feel like at this point we should have gone back and kept a running tally of what the church was up to at this point. Yeah. If anybody wants to, like, binge listen and give me a number, that would be really cool. Do some math for us, because... Mm-hmm. That's a much smaller number than we've been seeing, but also it just adds on. We are on our, like, 11th pope here, so the numbers are growing. Next, Anicetus is credited with an ordination that forbids members of the Christian clergy to have long hair, to, quote, follow the precept of the apostles. 
So if you are a Christian, you can now not have long hair. No more mullets for you. Nope. And this is thought to be a direct response to the Gnostics that we've been talking about who are still hanging around Rome because they've come to, at this point, generally been characterized by having long hair and long beards. So this would allow Christians to identify and recognize members of the faithful and not be confused by the Gnostics who are still preaching really similar views to Christianity. So if you were like an unsuspecting, you know, little Christian who didn't have any education and didn't know much and you're listening to this guy preach and he's talking about God and Jesus, you're going, yep, that's that's my guy, but he's got a beard? No, wrong guy. It makes some sense. It's kind of silly, but it makes some sense. And by the way, this is still the Roman fashion at the time as well. So Romans were having long hair and long beards, so this would set them apart from the pagans as well as the Gnostics. This is a way of self-identifying as a Christian against more than one different group. Didn't we already have a blanket hair and beard grooming statement from a prior pope? Yeah, kind of, but it was more general and a little bit vague, and now it's more like, this is an ordination from the church. He's taking it a bit more seriously now. Or it's total bullshit because it comes from Liber Pontificalis, and none of it could be true, and they're just like, losing track of what they attributed to each pope. But while we're kind of talking about Gnostics, we need to say that every source on Anicetus makes it really clear that he was fighting the heresies of the Valentinian followers, and even more so the Marcionites. As one source puts it, vigilance protected his flock from the wiles of heretics who sought to corrupt the faith in the capital of the world. And that that's not Father Francis, that's just... No, it's not flowery enough to be Father Francis. But specifically, Anicetus cracks down on what's called Montanism, or the New Prophecy. And this is a new religious branch that had been founded by a man called Montanus from Phrygia in current-day Turkey. And it was centered on the belief in the potential for new, ecstatic, and prophetic revelations. What that means is Montanus is presenting himself as a prophet with the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And he's claiming that other people can do this too. They can connect with the Holy Spirit for spontaneous and inspired revelations. Particularly if they were also fasting and praying for the divine guidance to come to them. Generally speaking, the church is not cool with more prophets than the ones they already have, and Montanus is like, I am a new prophet, I'm having revelations from the Holy Spirit, you can too. And he was also supported by two women, Prisca and Maximilia, who also claimed to be in communion with the Holy Spirit. And they would actually eventually exceed the popularity of Montanus, and they would be the ones who would spread some of this religious movement across the Roman Asian provinces. Now, one of the sources that we've used so far in this series for the earlier popes, Tertullian, at this point is said to have converted to become a Montanist. No! Betrayal! He is a heretic now! He's still going to be really, really useful for a long time to come, but you just have to remember that now, Tertullian, when he's speaking about the popes, is definitely a heretic, according to the popes. He even manages a group of Montanists in Carthage for the time being, so. Although it is said that later on he's going to split from the Montanists to form his own group called the Tertullianists. 
He's just not happy anywhere, really. So Anicetus might have been the first pope to condemn Montanism at the time, make it very clear that personal revelations and prophecy now is heresy, and the church only has the prophets that existed at the time of the apostles and Christ. You cannot be a prophet anymore. Nope. But we'll let Father Francis sum up Anicetus's attitude toward the heretics. As far as the heretics were concerned, who endeavored to implant in the hearts of Romans the seeds of their false doctrines, the Holy Father had the greatest compassion on them on account of their lost souls. He left nothing untried to bring them into the knowledge of their error, but he thought it prudent to banish those who remained inflexible from the city. Heart eyes, mother so 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 into Anicetus. he really is oh it's just imagine being me and doing the research and reading all of this in one letter <laughs> it's a lot of fun but wait there's more yeah because it is said that during the papacy of Anicetus, our old friend saint polycarp the man of many fishes bishop of smyrna comes to rome to meet with the pope Smyrna, at the time, was in Roman Asia, by the way, but it's currently the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. I want to talk a little bit about old Manyfish, because he's very important. I'm sad that he was never a pope. Well, he he is going to be a saint. Uh, yeah, but so is people who just die suddenly and abruptly. Oh, funny you should mention that. <laughs> We're going to come back to that at the end of this episode suddenly and abruptly but first old many fish polycarp was born somewhere around 69 a.d four years after the death of peter and was a disciple of john the apostle side note if you're paying attention this makes him very old at the time that he's coming to visit anicetus like so old crotchety yeah, like he's in his late 80s or 90s when he dies, and that's fairly close to this point. So even the sources who are discussing this visit refer to him as the aged Polycarp. This is like such an old man. <laughs> so like I said, he's a disciple of John the Apostle, converted and then consecrated as a bishop by him as well. Which, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it should have been Peter who was consecrating the bishops, but. You know, he's still an apostle, so it's good. Yeah. And Polycarp is hugely influential in the early church. He is a massive, massively important figure. He's like Clement and St. Ignatius, so he is also considered to be one of those apostolic fathers for having direct contact with the apostles. And he's also responsible for some of the earliest Christian works that still survive today. So this is why he's so important. We still have his writings. And he had been a bishop for so long at this point. He's so old. So this makes him easily one of the most preeminent men of the early church and a central figure of authority. And so overall, he's going to be important to both the Western and Eastern Orthodox churches. They still both look back to St. Polycarp as being hugely important. Oh, and he also performed a miracle because he was able to extinguish a fire that threatened to burn down all of Smyrna. And I want you to remember this for, for a minute, that he was able to extinguish a fire that threatened to burn down an entire city. That's a lot of extinguishing. Yeah, put a pin in that and remember it in the back of your head. Okay. Now, one of our most used sources at this point, Irenaeus. 
heard Polycarp preach when he was young, and he commented that Polycarp was a man who was of much greater weight and a more steadfast witness of truth than Valentinus, Marcion, and the rest of the heretics. I know, it doesn't seem like much to say you're better than some heretics. Yeah. But remember at the time that Gnostics were still having a pretty significant following and they're charismatic and persuasive, clearly, to have this kind of impact. So Irenaeus is saying that he is so much more impactful than they are. Polycarp is like the man. And Irenaeus is also going to be the reason that we have Polycarp's early Christian text, because Irenaeus is going to write an account of Polycarp's life and quote extensively from these writings, particularly the letter to the Philippians. So even though we don't have the originals of Polycarp, we still have them preserved because of Irenaeus. Excellent. Awesome. Good job. Now, Polycarp would eventually be martyred by the Romans. Of course. He's going to be burned at the stake. Oh, that's new. But remember when I said he could miraculously extinguish fire? Yeah. Okay, it's story time. <laughs> oh, ever since I wrote these notes, I've been waiting to tell you this story. So, the account we have from Apostolic Fathers suggests that the fire was lit to burn him, but it wouldn't actually touch his body, and he would not burn. And that instead... And this is a this is a direct translation from the quote that instead of burning, he started to look golden, like bread baking in an oven, Ugh. glowing with sweet smells coming from him. What? <laughs> so instead of being burned at the stake alive, he's turning into roasted toasty buns. Yeah, he's like a roast pig with sweet smells, and he's golden and he's glowing, and and so instead. The Romans cut him down and stab him to death. Oh, I mean, I just assumed that the cooking had made him dead. No, oh no. No, he was still very much alive, just golden and glowing and emitting sweet smells. Just crispy. He's a crispy fish, but he is not dead. So they take him down and uh, 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 and now he's dead. Oh my god. He's a roasty toasted many fish. And he is currently just to throw this in here, the patron saint of, of Izmir, Roasty Toasty Polycarp. That is one of my favorite stories that I have researched so far. But even though I had to tell you this story, we're, we're ahead of ourselves now because he has to actually meet with the Pope before he dies. So yes, he comes to Rome to meet with Anicetus and it all boils down to something we've been discussing a fair bit lately. Easter. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like a lot of the Eastern churches, Polycarp is one of those quartodecimans. He is celebrating Easter on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the same as Jewish Passover and the one where they celebrate on whatever weekday it happens to fall on. And like we've been discussing, the Roman Catholics have been pushing hard for Sunday. Sunday and only Sunday. Mm-hmm. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, 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 nothing but Sunday. Mattress sale down at the store. Sunday, Sunday. So Polycarp comes to Rome to discuss this with Anicetus to see if they cannot hammer out some sort of agreement and figure this out, right? Yeah. Spoiler alert. They don't. They don't. And no one will for a very long time. But as Eusebius says, they met and they discussed this matter. And though they could not come to a conclusion... 
the bonds of charity were not broken. They didn't fight. Yeah, they didn't fight about it. They don't agree about it, but they decide that they're not going to break over it. And Anicetus even concedes to Polycarp that Smyrna can continue to practice their celebrations in their own way. He's not going to try and enforce this on them. Okay. He's going to try to push the rest of the Christian world to go the way that Rome has prescribed, but Polycarp is given an exception. He's old. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hugely influential he's way more important than the pope at this point yeah don't make him do anything you're not gonna win exactly coming to this agreement or this exception is gonna alleviate tensions for a while as irenaeus tells us anicetus yielded the administration of the eucharist to polycarp as a mark of respect so now not only are you allowed to worship easter in your own way you can do the eucharist too that's cool just you that is how important this guy is. Yeah. So this was great for the time, but this is not going to bode well for the future because this exception and not taking a hard light stance is going to make this an issue that we're going to have to come back to and come back to and come back to. So we're going to come back to this until the Council of Nicaea in 325. When we get to Papatum and Thallium, we have to decide how we feel about this. I know how I feel about it. You are just so mad about Easter. I am. So when Easter rolls around next year, I'm just going to be grumbling. <laughs> but there's someone else we need to talk about really quick. Because Polycarp is not Anicetus's only notable visitor. Oh. Also during this time, Hegesippus comes to Rome. Is this a name you've heard? No. Hegesippus is a chronicler and one of the church's earliest historians. And he comes to Rome to make an account of ecclesiastical history from the time of the apostles up to his current time. Although he, he's going to do most of the writing of this actual document during the time of one of the next popes, it's during Anicetus' papacy that he comes and begins his investigation for this book that he's writing. Now here's the part that really sucks about all this. All of his works... All five volumes documenting a full history of the ecclesiastical events from the crucifixion of Christ up till his time are almost entirely lost to history. Oh no. This is the book. These are the books. All of them would have made this podcast so much easier to do and it would have made my life so much easier and it's gone. And all I get about it is this was awesome. This was a fantastic history, but it's gone. So it was a little bit of salt in the wound. I really wish that it existed to read because I would be so excited. <laughs> yeah, with how many copies of Fifty Shades of Grey there are, you could trade maybe 10,000 of those for a back-in-time copy of this man's work. I would trade all of them ever to ever be printed in the history of the world for that. Oh. That is a painful comparison. It is a good trade, though. It would be a fantastic trade. Can I make that deal? If you're listening up there, can I make that deal? <sighs> All we have left are eight passages that are preserved because they're quoted by Eusebius. But we know, for sure, that they are grand and extensive and they are cited by future scholars who are going to be really useful. They're quoted by Eusebius. They're cited by Jerome. So 
if you saw me at any point, listeners, mourning on Twitter about the loss of primary sources, this is exactly why. And many classicists tweeted me back because they completely shared my pain in this. That's my sad segue, which is fitting because now we need to talk about Anicetus's death. He died. Yes, as they do. Because if he were still alive today, that would be very strange. Well, I mean, we, we've been talking about old, old men this episode. But this is this is all we know. We know that he died. There's an offhand vague reference in a secondary source to martyrdom under the reign of Lucius Verus, who is the co-emperor to Marcus Aurelius, but there is no primary account of this or any reason we should think it's true. Father Francis says he was decapitated, so ding, ding, ding for you. Oh, hooray. <laughs> was a good guess. Surprise. There's only so many deaths. They're not very creative. Oh, they're going to get more creative. Oh, I know. There's going to be inventions. Ooh. Mm. I, I read about a great one earlier today. But back to Anicetus and his death that we don't know how it happened. We do know that he died somewhere between April 16th and April 20th of whatever the year was. Around Easter. Yep, around Easter. That seems fitting. This is what you deserve. I, I'm not sad about it. The 20th is generally what's accepted because it's celebrated as his feast day now, but that's only since 1970 when they moved it from April 17th. Why? We we really don't know. They were doing some weird things in the 70s. I think there was probably drugs involved. You think the popes were on drugs when they decided who was a martyr and who wasn't? It was the 70s! Entirely possible. We'll find out when we get a lot closer. He's said to be buried in the cemetery slash catacombs of Calixtus, who at the time was a deacon of Rome and had the cemetery created as part of an underground catacomb system, like the Hypogea that we talked about with Alexander. And the Cemetery of Calixtus is going to be well used by popes in the future, referenced often as the Capella de Papi, or Crypt of the Popes. And Calixtus is going to be a future pope, but he won't be buried there. Oh, he doesn't even get to be buried in his own place? We'll get to why. His is the interesting death that I read about earlier. All right. But we're going to be talking about the cemetery a lot as we go. It actually will have a fairly significant impact on the papacy for a while. Anicetus still gets referenced in the martyrologies, but again, there is a consensus that he probably didn't die for the faith. I read in several articles that this consolation prize that they seem to be giving to the, the earlier popes is if he did not shed blood for the faith, he at least purchased the title of martyr by great sufferings, tribulations, and dangers. It's like retrospective martyrdom. Oh, you didn't, you weren't actually martyred, but you're an early pope and you suffered for the church. You're a martyr now. You get a martyrdom and you get a martyrdom. Everyone gets a martyrdom. It is so true because I had to spend a long time trying to figure out which pope would be the first one to like not be a martyr or not be a saint. It's going to be a while. So now let's see how Anicetus holds up when we rate him. Papatum and Phallium. Okay, so big stuff for him. He has this visit with Polycarp. This affirms the Western Orthodox position of celebrating Easter on a Sunday again. I mean, barely. Yeah, it's that part's not the big deal, but the part that is is that he's not breaking with the Eastern Church over this issue, which at the time 
is great for the church. Yes, it's important not to lose a faction when you're a baby. Exactly. And we have to look at whether or not we're going to judge this on what he did in his own time period or how this is going to affect the future. Because I don't necessarily think it's fair to hold him to account for what later popes are going to do. No, that wouldn't be fair at all. Because then we would have to go back and change Peter because look what he did. Exactly. Exactly. I think we have to look at it without the benefit of hindsight and say, for the time, this was pretty great for the church, that they were able to stick together over this issue and not break over this issue. Pretty big deal. So keep that in mind. There's two other things we need to consider on here. Polycarp is coming to him to have this discussion. Yeah, that old man is traveling. Yeah, we've said that Polycarp is is more important than him, has been around for much, much longer than him, is extremely influential, but he's coming to the Pope to have this discussion. Well, I assume that's more of the, to appear unified, Rome has to be the important place. Yeah, it's it's a direct argument for primacy. Right? This is this is saying the Pope is the head of the church. Because this is something that we've we've been talking about, but it's still kinda sorta been debated for a while. This is a pretty strong indication that we are at the point that Rome is definitely the head of the church. Influential people are coming to Rome to meet with the Pope. The Pope actually has some sense of power here. And the other thing we need to consider is that Hegesiphus is coming to Rome. And this is, again, reaffirming that Rome is the capital of the world for Christianity. If you want to write a religious history, you have to come to Rome. So this is a pretty good papal impact. What do I want to give him? Yeah, what do you want to give him for this? Uh, I don't know, probably like a two. I don't want to give him a ton, but also I don't want to make it seem like he didn't do anything. A two? Yeah. That seems really low. I'm going to give him like a five because i think that if anything we're seeing the impact of the church really having an influence having power having authority here and making decisions that are going to keep the church together that's fair i'll bump it up to a three all right i think that's fair and that gives him an overall eight yeah for Papatum and Thallium, I think that's a fair score. Fructus prohibitum. I think Father Francis said it. He doesn't. He is the enemy of all pleasures and amusements. There's no way he could have a score in this category. No, he almost has to get a negative score in this category because he is so chaste and pure. He's Christian perfection. Uh-huh. That's a negative one for me. Oh, I don't think we can give him negatives. It's going to mess with everything. <laughs> But we could, we could give him a nice flat-out zero. All right. All right. So that gives him a zero for fructus prohibitum. Seculari impactum. There's there's a couple ways to look at this one. Um, He's he's tied to the importance of Amesa. So as this is an important city in the empire, we can say he's, he's going to increase the importance of the ties between Rome and Amesa, but only really for the Christians. That's one thing, maybe. Uh, Hegesippus' account is going to be hugely important for many, many years, and church chroniclers and historians, and that's not just going to affect the church. This is, this is a huge source that was written in the time of Anicetus, so we might want to give him a little bit of credit for that. Yeah, it's not his fault that that got burned or lost or whatever happened to it. 
Well, and in the time that it was there, it was extremely useful for people. So we could give him points for that. I'm going to give him a one, at least for Hegesippus. That's that's pretty much all I can think of. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'll match you. All right. So he gets a two for Secularis and Pacum. Fossium Sanctus. Show me this man. All right. We have a the image that we're actually going to write on is a little different. Ooh. I like when they're weird. It's weird. It's not weird in the same way that the other ones have been weird. But it's not going to be what you're expecting. So here you go. (laughs) (laughs) This looks like a, basically like if you were going to create a D&D like dwarf. This is the photo that accompanies it next to how you build out your dwarf character and talks about all of the dwarven stats. (laughs) Okay, yeah, he looks real short. I think that is... That is because he's on his knees. It's really hard to tell in this picture. I'm going to send you the full version. Okay. This painting is called The Martyrdom of Pope Anicetus, and it is in the Church of St. Anicito. So he does have a church. Oh, cool. But this this is the full version. Yeah, he's. I guess he's supposed to be on his knees. He still looks really short. He He does. He looks real short. If you look at it just in that cropped version, mm-hmm. it looks like he's throwing up gang signs. No, he's uh he's getting ready for burial. Well, he's not gonna have a head for that, so Well he's got that's why he's gotta prepare now. He's gotta put his arms up in that pose so that when he collapses he's ready to just be put straight in the ground. Well that that was very thoughtful of him. It's because he's so chaste and pure. He doesn't wanna be doesn't wanna be an inconvenience to anybody. Thinking about his murderers. Based on the cropped version of just him. Okay. First of all, are those carrots or jalapenos on his stole? I don't know. They they do look like carrots. I'm going to say they are carrots. <laughs> all right. I'm glad we have that out of the way. He's making stances on Easter, okay? Uh-huh. He needs some carrots. Yeah. So based on that image, what would you like to give him? I could give him a three. Look, his face is, it's, it's like a nice, jolly grandpa face. Like, if I saw him somewhere, he would offer me, like, some money because I was a perfect human, and then he would leave. Well, a three, I think, is pretty good. Uh, I, I don't know. No, nah, I'm going to give him a three, too, because I think that's that's a good score. He's different. He's interesting. I don't know. I, I like it. I just kind of like it. And this is an entirely subjective category, as they all are, so... That gives him a total of 1.5 for Facium Sanctus. Pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not ugly or anything. He's just kind of there, looking chaste. And now that we've judged him on that, I'm going to send you one of the more regular ho-hum pictures. <laughs> it's a grumpy face. Yeah, I, I wanted to send this one after because really the only thing here to talk about is that he's got that grumpy face going on. So And the bunny poof is back. Yeah, he just looks like, this looks like random assigned face more than anything else. The random assigned face, RAF. That actually was something that they did in a lot of the church frescoes when we get to Renaissance and medieval paintings. If they didn't have any sources of what the person looked like, a lot of the popes are given random assigned faces. So that's why I always try to find more than one photo to use for this category. There you go. Tempus Pontificus. So, the dates suggested for him are 154 to 167, 
155 to 166, 165 to 173, or 157 to 168. The most common is the 157 to 168, which is 11 years, giving him a score of 2.75. All right. A lot of 11-year popes in this era. Yeah. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. He is a saint. His feast day is April 20th now to coincide with the date that they accept to be his death date instead of April 17th, which it has generally been. Yeah, well. Interestingly, he's often portrayed in his paintings and images uh, with his papal tiara, but the papal tiara isn't going to exist until the 8th century. They just want to make sure you know he's a pope. Yeah. And they also show him with a palm branch, which is usually a symbol for martyrs. Easter. But like we said, he's probably not one. A lot of his depictions are really weird and false, so he's not a patron saint of anything, so what would you like to make him a patron saint of? Oh, no. Well, he's got nothing. I got nothing. Ooh. Yeah, he's not interesting. Because Hegesippus came in his time, I would suggest, like, the patron saint of lost historical documents. Oh, that's good. And and look, the Great Library of Alexandria needs somebody to love it. Yes. Yeah, so that's going to be Anicetus from now on. All right. So that one's not a funny one, it's a mad one. Mm-hmm. We call out to you, St. Anicetus, deliver us from this frustration. I'm going to, like, tweet that to all of my, my uh, classicists on Twitter. So that brings us to his total score, which is... Ooh, do you want to guess? Um, 15. His final score is (laughs) (laughs) 15.25. You're on par for guessing today, so that's great. That, you know, it's not too bad. That doesn't put him at the bottom. No. Puts him third from the bottom by the looks of it. So, you know, that seems fair. He hasn't done anything amazing. And the only, like, fan literature about him didn't come until the 1800s with Father Francis. But now we need to decide. Does he have that papal pizzazz that makes him worthy of a papal bull? Oh, that's a good question. Because, like, he had all of those people coming to him and his papal authority. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if I want to give it to him. Is he memorable enough for you? No. Then that's our answer right there, because I wouldn't give it to him anyways. I, You know, I kind of enjoyed reading about him. I then, you know, yelled about some missing sources. He was a fun pope to research, but nah, he just doesn't cut the mustard for me, so. Sorry, Anacetus, we just can't give it to you. Nope. But we're not quite done, because now it's time for Pope Watch. A Pope Watch. So yesterday, Pope Francis announced that he is expanding the list of people to be canonized on October 14th. Oh, yeah? We previously discussed this due to the fact that um, Pope Paul VI and Bishop Oscar Romero were going to be canonized. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about them. Yeah, but now he will also canonize Nunzio Suprizio. Okay. This is going to be a name you've never heard of. I don't know who that is. Well, let me tell you a little bit about him. 
Nunzio Sulprizio was born in 1817 in Pesco Sansonesco in the Pescara region of Italy. That's a city name. This is where he worked as an apprentice blacksmith. Not generally your candidate for canonization? No. He lived a rough life of starvation and poor health, with gangrene in the leg that eventually had to be amputated. But he was educated in the church, and he gave himself to God when he entered the Hospital of the Incurables. That is a name. Yeah, well, he was incurable. He had that gangrene. Yeah, it was real bad. He died in 1836 at the age of 19. What? Yeah, and he's a saint, so this is why. He is credited with two miracles of direct healing. Well, he couldn't fix himself? Mm, well, these direct miracles of healing are said to have occurred after his death in the form of Petition for Intercension. Oh, one of those. This is the one that where they they pray to you after you're dead, and you heal them, and therefore you have conducted a miracle. Therefore you are magic. So the one that drew attention to him for this process of beatification and then canonization occurred when a man who was in a coma following a motorcycle accident was awakened from his coma in a non-vegetative state after one of Sulprizio's relics was put in his hospital room. Okay. Yeah. Besides Sulprizio, Pope Paul VI and Bishop Oscar Romero are going to be canonized. Four other people are also set to be canonized at this consistory. Francesco Spinelli, the founder of the Institute of the Sister Adorers for the Blessed Sacrament in Milan. Vincenzo Romano, a priest from Torre del Greco, Italy. Maria Caterina Asper, who founded the Institute of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ in Germany. And Nazaria Ignazia Marchmesa who founded the Congregation of the Missioneras Cruzadas de la Inglesia Sisters in Argentina. Okay. We're going to get seven new saints. That's pretty awesome. And that brings us to the end of the episode where we make thank yous. And this week we have a special thank you to make to a podcast that has really helped promote us. They have retweeted everything that we tweet about our show. Every episode they've retweeted. So we need to specifically thank <laughs> it happens when you party naked. <laughs> so thank you <laughs> happens when you party naked. We really appreciate it. We get to shame bell part of that. Yep. Yep. They're in a shame bell their podcast name. But other than that, we want to thank all of our listeners and especially the people who are leaving five star reviews. You guys are the best. You are helping us get visible and it makes a big difference. So if you want to help us out. You can be one of those people. Yeah. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at PontifaxPod. You can also email us at PontifaxPod at gmail.com. And, you know, reviews are great. Leave some of those on iTunes or whatever podcatching platform allows you to leave those. Yeah. That'd be excellent. It would be great. So with that, we can say thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.